podcast. Yeah. Absolutely. Dave Malloy is a friend of the podcast because he is a friend of my artistic soul in my heart. Uh, and after adapting a section of War and Peace into a musical that should have won Best Musical yes. uh, in 2017, nope, not over it, will never be over it, mm-hmm. Twas robbed, uh, he was like, you know what I could do next? I could adapt Moby Dick by Herman Melville. <laughs> into a musical and he did and i saw it when i lived in boston because it had its out of town tryout at american repertory theater in cambridge (sighs) and it was incredible and it made me go hey i should read that book and i started to read that book but this was occurring in january of 2020 and you may know that my attention span was (laughs) nuked by a global pandemic yeah you know shortly thereafter very relatable so very relatable. <laughs> it, you could say Moby Dick is my own literary white whale. Oh my god. Why are we doing this to Roddy? I love it. I love it. <laughs> Jeff, we... you're a terrible influence on me. What did we call it? The, the gayest doorstop? Yeah, the gayest doorstop in American literature. A, a love letter to the guy who wrote the Scarlet Letter? Really? I mean, I don't know if Moby Dick is a love letter to Nathaniel Hawthorne, but, but that... Herman Melville was super into Nathaniel Hawthorne right. in a very homoerotic way. That's right, because Nathaniel Hawthorne wasn't even into himself. No! But it, but <laughs> yes, it was... Can the Scarlet Letter be written by anyone who remotely enjoyed themselves? It's like, the Scarlet Letter could have been so sexy. It could have been. And like, Roddy, I need you to picture, I need you to picture a room full of 10th grade girls in all-girls Catholic school, reading the Scarlet Letter and getting to the self-flagellation scene and going, there's no way this could awaken something in me because it's the, this is the least sexy he self-flagellation the scene least sexy way that I've so ever seen. <laughs> and yet, this was the same group of girls who read Jane Eyre next year and then went, I hope this doesn't awaken anything in me. But that time it did. You know Jane what? Is actually a good book. Though, that is what fan fiction is for. Um... <laughs> I know that we have to tell the good people what podcasts they're listening to, but right before we do, I do have to say, speaking of fan fiction, my uh, 11th grade English teacher once read fan fiction about Jane Eyre that one of her students had written. She read it aloud to us. Why? I don't know, because she thought it was a good example of a prior project. And the fan fiction was that George Mason and Mr. Rochester were having an affair. And so all of the weird noises from the attic was gay sex. (gasps) Oh my god. <laughs> First of all, genius premise. Second of all, I have to truly emphasize this was a Catholic school with only girls. You know, having gone to Catholic school from kindergarten to eighth grade, there be shenanigans. There be shenanigans. And in this case, that was a classroom full of 11th graders, most of whom were going, interesting, please continue. And one of whom was properly horrified. I was not properly horrified. I was like, no, no, Mrs. Weiner, please keep going. Welcome to possibly the most unhinged episode of A Little Too Quiet. It's the Ferndale Library podcast brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. My name is Jeff, and I'll introduce Mary Graham first because Roddy's lost it. Hi. Hello. And then Roddy's here too. Hi. You know, we... I just sat back there for a minute and let you go. Now, not exactly a love letter to... 
to Nathaniel, but kind of a notice me, Nathaniel, notice me. Look uh, at, got it. Look at this thing He's I did. He's one of those. He's one of those. Much, much like the self-flagellation scene is um, in public, I think. Uh, so it's- Oh man. There are so many layers. There's, there are layers. That's like a seven layer dip right there. Indeed, indeed. You know what's especially exciting? Uh, if, if nothing else, if there's nothing else guiding us today, it's that March is reading month and we're here being very nerdy about books. And so mission accomplished. You, yes. dear listener, should read classic books yep. so that A, you can learn how unhinged they are because not we're only like this, Roddy, I think, because we dedicated our higher education yes. to studying unhinged works of classic literature. Uh, in chronological order for me. So I got to watch like oh, the right. process of the unhinged just completely just unfold in ways that were honestly quite, quite beautiful. <laughs> Don't be scared of classic literature, listeners. Classic literature is bananas. You know, one might say that when Odysseus got back from his 20-year journey to go check on his wife, Penelope, oh, no. he was unhinged. Okay. So listen, we started this podcast. <laughs> uh, I think the way that I'm marketing it is that we're going to litigate literature and we're going to argue a little passionately about a few titles. Odyssey's on the table. Literally, there's a book on the table. Yep. There's a sound effect. <laughs> Moby Dick is on the table. Um, Romeo and Juliet, not on the table. But, but it exists in my head. I could have brought go. my copy in from home, but I'm just picturing where it is on my bookshelf. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, we're just here. We're also here because we like to argue. Yes. We sure um, do. And because everyone is wrong about Romeo and Juliet and not in the way you think. Yes, actually, I do agree with that, despite so, not liking the play. If you want, we can like. Do uh, we a... need to start there because okay. I think I'm wrong and I don't know how I'm wrong. <clears throat> okay. Um, I will just say that just to get my thoughts off the table. It's a love story. It. I Romeo don't. Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> Hold on. Technically, is a love story. Correct. But it is a tragedy. Also, it correct. is a political tragedy. It is. 100% a tragedy. And the thing that frustrates me is that how it's received in education, how it's received in popular culture is that it is sold not as a love story, but as a romance specifically, which if you have talked to me and Mary Graham, if you have listened to us talk about romances before, you know how we feel about that. It is not a romance Shakespeare wrote romantic plays. Shakespeare wrote romantic comedies. He really, really delved into romance. There is a reason why Romeo and Juliet is next to Macbeth and King Lear and not over with the fun party happening in Much Ado About Nothing and also Twelfth Night. And like you can check this up in the first folio, literally, which is organized by genre to an extent. Yes. Um. So. So yeah. So I also. You're absolutely right about Romeo and Juliet is absolutely, I think, often massacred in its place in the American education system. Most folks, I think, get it in ninth grade as their introduction mm -hmm. to Shakespeare. If they weren't a massive Shakespeare nerd, raises hand who was reading A Midsummer Night's Dream in fifth grade. Um, <laughs> my mother was once like, how on earth do you know what syphilis is? And I was like, but note in Shakespeare. And she was like. Well, I believe that and acceptable, I suppose. So <laughs> Relatable, but slightly different. My mom was like, you should know what this is because Shakespeare. And I was like, well, I do because you. So thank you. <laughs> uh, but with Romeo and Juliet, I find is often either taught as a romance or it's taught 
highly judgmentally. Uh, like when I studied in an all girls Catholic school as a 14 year old, that was a room full of girls who were kind of predisposed to go, boys are stupid, you've thrown away your life, and, like, we would make such better decisions. Like, people like to teach Romeo and Juliet because Juliet is almost 14 when the action happens. Mm -hmm. She is right on the cusp of her 14th birthday. And people think, oh, this will be hashtag relatable for the kids. Mm -hmm. Except it's not. Because what makes Romeo and Juliet a tragedy is being an adult and watching it. Yes. And realizing how young all these protagonists are and that these these forces of social violence are ultimately what kills them when they're just teenagers being a little bit dumb. And the thing is, teenagers deserve to be a little bit dumb yes. and not die because of it. But when you're 14 and you haven't done anything stupid yet, you don't know this. You're mm-hmm. sitting there going, I simply, like, RIP to Romeo and Juliet, but I'm different. Right. Like, I simply would have made better choices. When I came back to this play as a 19 or 20 year old, I was like, you poor babies. Yes. I don't want you to die. And that actually, I remember that happening when I was watching the Zeffirelli film Mm -hmm. because I mean, like Olivia Hussey and her perfect little moon face. I was like, she's a child. Yes. I also think that um, the 90s version was other than Harold Perrineau and um, John Leguizamo was a mistake. I, I hate that version with a passion I hate it because too. I feel like it also directly feeds into a lot of the romanticization of that story. And like, I don't hate it because people will be like, oh, you just don't understand Lerman's vision. And I'm like, no, I do. I hate Leonardo DiCaprio and I don't think he's a good actor. Yes. Like, that's why I don't like that movie. I will say, I do not know the actor who does the, who plays the prince who in that movie is a police chief. Let's Which, not even uh... get into that. But I will say that the way he delivers the ending like monologue soliloquy whatever mm-hmm. was actually very well done but other than that it it that movie is too it is Baz Luhrmann at his best which is the worst for Romeo and Juliet yes and the thing is there are I think romantic moments like when Romeo and Juliet meet and they're trading lines back and forth mm-hmm. those lines form a sonnet mm-hmm. um which is quite, like, I've seen this play in performance a bunch of times. It is quite touching. And it's this kind of thing that's like, this could be, if it weren't about these two families who, as the prologue tells us, are are equals. This isn't West Side Story, Mm-mm. where one of these classes actually has more privilege mm-hmm. than another one. These are, like, equal parties nobody even remembers why they're fighting anymore it's just a point of pride Mm -hmm. it is really truly the definition of stupid senseless violence it's like okay without the stupid senseless violence maybe these kids would have stayed in love maybe they wouldn't have but then we wouldn't have a story like this is about you know two teenagers who have a crush on each other things that people are allowed to do but because of the social pressure cooker that they're in they take really extreme actions and even some of the adults around them like Fire Lawrence take really extreme actions and I definitely remember when the pandemic started somebody being like oh dang that realization that the letter that Juliet's alive never gets to Romeo because there's plague really hits different now doesn't it yeah I have four things to say in quick succession you only have to address the final two not the first two uh, the first two being uh, Paul Rudd plays Paris in the Romeo and Juliet version of Baz Luhrmann. Uh, he's at the party scene. Uh, the second being 
popular media and film adaptations really have a way of messing with you as you pick up the book because it's likely you are exposed to, if not the movie, probably the trailer for it or a poster for it before you pick it up and you see 19-year-old Leonardo DiCaprio and 17-year-old Claire Danes and you're like, oh, okay. So, you know, they're mm-hmm. high school age. So that that whole thing does not hit you when you pick it up and you start reading the text really because your your mind has been mm-hmm. hit by those images. These are two things to, to, to unpack. Uh, my English teacher, hopefully to their credit, the part that they really emphasize the most, like the most shocking or important thing is Romeo's uh, killing or murdering of Tybalt. Mm-hmm. Also, does Romeo have a deeper backstory than Juliet? Because I feel like Romeo already has an ex at the start and he's got Mercutio. Juliet's just kind of got her parents. Help me out there. And her nurse. And oh, yes. here's the thing is that really Juliet doesn't have her parents. Oh, Juliet yes. has her nurse. I mean, her even there's in the first scene with her mother, her mother is like, I have to talk to my daughter. Nurse, go away. And I've seen a lot of really good productions kind of play with this. Like the next line in the folio is nurse, I have remembered me come back again. Um, but I've seen a lot of productions play with this with like, you know, Juliet kind of walking up and being like, you know, sort of yes, ma'am. And her mom realizing she doesn't know how to talk to her own daughter because she didn't raise her. Mm-hmm. And then also being like, oh, <laughs> nurse, come back again. Like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, so Juliet lives this very lonely life. She has her nurse and she she ha- I think that really where Juliet's background kind of deepens is actually the scene where her father th- threatens to throw her out if she doesn't marry Paris like you've had him as this very doting father for most of the play even telling Paris like my daughter is too young to be married the earth hath swallowed all my hopes but she she's my only child mm-hmm. you know I, I contrary to I think widely popular belief getting married at 14 was not common in the early modern era. You might make a political marriage at that age that wouldn't be consummated for another four or five years, but that was only if you were like royalty or stupid, stupid rich. Like Mm -hmm. Shakespeare's audience, upon hearing that there's this guy named Paris, not played by Paul Rudd, but played by Paul Rudd, who is interested in marrying this still 13-year-old girl, like that audience would have gone, ew. Right. Like they would have gone like, okay, that guy's kind of creepy. Right. Um, and so for most of the play, you have Juliet's father saying, no, no, no. Like it's ultimately going to be up to her and I want to shield her from the world a little longer. But then the minute that she truly digs her heels in on something and defies him, the minute that she's not just like daddy's little girl going along with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, in most productions, he flings her across the stage, you know, and he he ends with something along the lines of, you know, beg, starve, die in the streets. If it's a competition, the Capulets are more messed up. Um, I would putting, agree with putting that. Putting that on the table. Yeah. Uh, but there's that thing, and I would say that West Side Story does this too, and a lot of productions do it, uh, is that it's always uh, really dramatic when the Romeo character kills the Tybalt character. Yes. It's, well, it's the middle of the play. And yeah. it's also point of no return. Yeah. But I think that West Side Story or Romeo and Juliet would all, always play that as... Uh, oh no, this definitely means Romeo will not be able to ever be with Juliet rather than he's just killed a guy. Yeah. Right. The love the love angle is always brought in mm-hmm. despite what the fighting is. Because the kinship ties are so strong. Right. You know. Um, but like the tension, the aggression, uh, the, that's, that's, 
on the side, I guess. No, I think that is still important to think about because, for example, when Mercutio dies, mm-hmm. it is it is this person was just killed. Mercutio right. gets his dying moments and things like that. Ask but, me tomorrow, you shall find me a grave man. Yes, best character in the play, once again. Agreed. Just have to say that. But when Tybalt dies, it is kind of just like a, it's treated often as like, okay, we're moving the plot along to get to the point of no return, right. as you just said. Yeah. And it does kind of get swept over, not, I don't think in the writing, but in how it's perceived of like right. Romeo coming to terms with the fact that he just took a life and it being treated by us not saying us but like us in general as like a oh well now he's forever separated from Juliet rather than like the real crux of the pain the the devastation that comes with the action that he just took I think a lot of people have fun with that because it's always shocking when your protagonist is like commits a wrong yeah it doesn't always happen Mm -hmm. they're not always a, a squeaky clean perfect person so I think I see that modern adaptations would really like, oh, he just killed somebody. Yeah. And that's the other part is that like, I don't know, with our like trend to dark. Are you still going to root for him? Takes. Is he you're still still your hero? Yeah. If he killed someone? Which like. <sighs> yeah. Ben Affleck smoking dot JPEG. Like, yes, yes. <laughs> I am. Back, it. It's like saying you don't care about Lear because he's a jerk to his daughters. Okay, I still enjoy the dramatic potential of a guy having a breakdown in the rain. Like, that's good theater. I don't know what to tell you. You're saying... No, I'm just I'm just thinking now that I don't know if they're I mean, uh, outside of the stage itself, Mm -hmm. because while I do say that people should watch adaptations of Shakespeare because they are plays they are meant to be watched, I almost particularly mean the plays unless we are talking about the Kenneth Branagh movie. But that's a whole other topic. But in, in a film adaptation, I don't think there's any way that that would be played properly at this point in time, because you would either get the super like grim, dark. Christopher Nolan Batmanization of Romeo at that point. Yeah. Or you would get the like typical, we're gonna lean fully into the oh no, this is tragic for this romance. Yeah, angle. which is and like there's talk about talk about problematic people, Franco Zeffirelli, who? Um and and yeah. I think that I think that if you're going to watch a production of Romeo and Juliet that was made specifically for film, I would encourage the Zeffirelli because like it is what he's very much known for of the big, you know, mm-hmm. world building type sets, you know, medieval streets of Verona, all that jazz. But really what I would encourage people to do is go watch the production from the globe. Yes. Which is actors on a stage. It's a filmed stage production. You can hear the people who are standing in the yard. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think it's like both beautifully acted and just also like, conveys that whole sense also when you're watching the a theatrical production it matters less if the girl playing juliet doesn't look like she's 13 like we're used to film with a high level of verisimilitude mm-hmm. whereas at the theater there's a bit more willing suspension of disbelief so you can you can look at a girl who maybe looks like she's 18 and go okay brain but you have to think 13 mm-hmm. and that's easier i find when I'm in the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I love the production that's available from the Globe. And I think it it hits all the right punches for yeah. all the right reasons. And their Mercutio is excellent. Yes. It makes me want to see a theatrical production, perhaps, of 
the Odyssey, Mary Graham, so that I can get Armand Asante out of my head. Oh my Roddy. goodness! Because <laughs> folks, that... this is this is what you call a segue. It's not Armand's fault. I never edit out Roddy's size. Because <laughs> I am actually just, you know, a bunch of heavy size in a human shell. Um, but it's not, there's there's no way to do an adaptation of the Odyssey. Because I was going to say, I didn't know anyone had even properly yeah, tried. Yeah, it was like a 90s miniseries. At least I watched it in miniseries form. Amand Desante was in it as Odysseus. It sounds um, like it would be a very boring thing to watch. Like... What's her name? Oh, it was three hours. I've not read the Odyssey Something... all the way through, but I have read excerpts, okay. including from Emily Wilson, who, which is the copy that's sitting on the table in front yes. of us. And I'm like, oh, I could listen to this for hours. I understand how the ancient Greeks did this. I do not want to watch this on a screen. They had Bernadette Peters as Cersei. No. And, um, what is her name? First, last name is Williams. As Vanessa Cal- Williams. Vanessa Williams as Calypso. As Calypso. Yeah, I watched this Incredible. when I was younger. So... I mean, as far as casting goes, outside of like the fact that Sean Bean is actually Odysseus in my heart for a variety of reasons, not really necessarily because of the bad Troy movie. Um, I I would watch Bernadette Peters do anything. But here's the thing. So this is what people don't understand about the Odyssey is that you actually go a long time without actually getting to Odysseus in the Odyssey. You start out with his son Mm -hmm. who is at home with these suitors who are constantly trashing their house, eating all of their food, openly plotting to harm him, um, plotting on his mother because the Trojan War took about nine years, nine to 10 years. And then Odysseus is at sea, not home for an additional 10 years. So it's been 20 years since he left home. And people are like, he's dead. People are like, he's not coming back. His wife needs to marry someone else and so on and so forth. So you spend a long time with his son who is visited by Athena in disguise and is like, why don't you go talk to your dad's old war buddies, go on a little boat trip and go <laughs> credit to Jeff we have talked about this before mm-hmm. but she's like go talk to your dad's old friends like Nestor and Menelaus and see how they're doing see what they got to say about your dad and so he does and it's a lot of like him going to visit people and them giving him gifts and crying about his father and so on and so forth and then by the time you actually get to Odysseus he is actually on Calypso's island already that's where he starts And then he sails across to this one place, not going to remember all the names right now. And this like king's daughter finds him by the riverbank and she's like, okay, come to my father's house tomorrow and then we'll take care of you and we will send you on our way. That's our people's custom. And then when he gets to that point, that is when you hear him recount his travels. Record scratch, freeze frame. I bet you're wondering how I got here. Quite literally. And so this is my thing. The way the Odyssey is approached, this is just how I personally wish it were approached. I don't necessarily think that it's taught wrong. Um, I just think that once you have the actual text in front of you versus what you are seen, what you are shown, you actually um, get a lot more of the fact that this is actually a story very much about the son and the father Mm -hmm. rather than just the father because usually Telemachus doesn't show up in these adaptations until Odysseus gets back to Ithaca and I just take strong offense to that um mostly because 
I think that the Odyssey is a story about fathers and sons. When you take it down to like the basic levels of the conflict, um, you get, there are so many stories about fathers and sons mentioned in here. Like when he goes to visit King Nestor first, he spends all that time with Nestor and his sons. Like every son is named just about, it feels like. Um, when you get to Odysseus's story where he's telling them where everything went wrong and you get the very classic tale of like him blinding the Cyclops and the Cyclops screaming as it happens. That's and a every, gory passage. It is a gory passage. And the other Cyclops are like, what happened to you? What did what happened? And I think the most like common translation of the Greek word is nobody. Uh, you have to kind of say it like that because nobody would be a little too, you have to like nobody, like kind of make it sound like an almost name. And then Polyphemus, who is the Cyclops is like, oh yes, nobody blind me. And they're like, okay, <laughs> wait, <laughs> stop screaming, dude. <laughs> and um, in this translation, Emily Wilson uses nomen as the name. So like no man. Mm -hmm. The problem is that what Odysseus does, and this is Odysseus's flaw, is that he's very, very arrogant about how smart he is. So as they are sailing away after they have escaped this murderous Cyclops, he starts yelling back to Polyphemus on shore and is like, yeah, and if anybody asks who did this to you, tell them it was Odysseus of Ithaca, mic drop. And Polyphemus is like, okay, hey, challenge Dad. accepted. Papa, <laughs> Papa, a man has blinded me. And Poseidon, who is his father, is just like, okay, I'm about to put this man through hell. I'm about literally. to end this man's whole career. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Spark notes, <laughs> wishes they could, I'm just kidding. But that is, that is what I mean about this being about the relationships of fathers and sons. That is the push of this entire story is, you know, Polyphemus and Poseidon, um, Odysseus and Telemachus, but also Odysseus and his father, because Odysseus's father is alive this entire time, which is interesting because he's king of Ithaca already while his father is living. And that's not really explored. It's not explored why his father does not t resume power once he has gone to Troy. It is, none of that is actually really explored very much by Homer. And it's something that I've been asking myself about for years at this point, because I am so intrigued by it. Because why is he king while his father is still alive? What is going on with the power in Ithaca? What is happening here? So that is the long-winded explanation of my it. thought process. I love it. And it it's also, it's interesting, and I have to just put this out there for someone, if you ever read the Odyssey, when Odysseus returns home, he comes home in disguise. And while he does reveal himself to everyone in time, he actually stays in his disguise for a very long time. He likes to test people when he first sees them. And when he reunites with his father at the end of the book, um, at the end of the last book, I should say, because it's broken into books, not chapters. He does show up to his father in disguise, but Laertes, who is his father, is so distressed about having lost his wife and potentially his son that Odysseus is so overwhelmed with like emotion that he actually cannot continue to test his father. He just gives up the ghost and is like, it's me, dad, I'm home. I'm the problem. 
Yeah, like, and that is the one person. Like, he tests everyone, even Athena, at one point. Like, he's a little testy little man. So, like, he does that to everyone except for his father because these, this book is about father and son relationships and not necessarily about the bed built around the olive tree. Sorry, <laughs> I just had to throw that out there. That is not how that was taught to me. Yes, but, you know, if... <laughs> if People would just listen to me talk about the Odyssey for 24 hours. Once I got past all of the murder, because there is a lot of murder in this book. There is a rather astonishing amount of murder. There is so much. And then all the time, like, oh my gosh. Mary Graham's like, can confirm. He likes to lie to people for fun. And so many of his lies are just like, yeah, I was out on this island killing these guys. This, I mean, (laughs) it's reminding me of like... John Mulaney's rather famous delivery of the line, you know, like a liar. <laughs> and again, Sparknotes wishes they had what we have. Like that's, you could subtitle this, yes. you know, the Odyssey, you know, like a liar. And he just, Odysseus is a complicated character because he's he's so arrogant and so selfish at times. And it's like, oh, I will listen to the siren sing, but none of you can. We will all go to the land of the dead, but only I will hear what they have to say. And I will talk to these other great men and great women. There, there's so much that happens well, here. I wish I could give credit, but there is that. I mean, this is my kind of humor, but it's a comic strip. So it is comic strip humor. And it's Odysseus on the boat with all the guys. And one of the guys rowing says, what is an Odyssey anyway? And he probably says, it's a journey named after the only survivor. I love that. And one of the other guys is like, oh. (laughs) As they realize that they are on an odyssey. Uh, They are doomed by the narrative. Yes. But but Odyssey and the Iliad, for that matter. So just big slight to Homer. In in my AP English in college, in my memory, the only books that on the curriculum just felt like both the teacher and the professor were like, well, we're going to cover this because it's important. I got nothing else to give you. It's, it's important. And you know why it's important, Jeff? Reading the Odyssey is important so that when you watch Black Sails, every Odyssey <laughs> reference, you can go, oh, it's just like in the Odyssey. Like, listener, my contribution to this, uh, to this conversation is to tell you that, A, if you were a Percy Jackson fan and you want a deep dive that involves a lot of comments very similar to the ones Roddy has made mm-hmm. uh, about the cultural and literary history behind Percy Jackson, please go listen to the podcast Monster Donut. And then second of all, uh, and I'm sure that we'll make a podcast about this at some point because Simon just bought the DVDs. So now we have an excuse. Please go watch Black Sails. <laughs> because like everything that you say about Odysseus, about this is a man who's very arrogant about his own cleverness and also is a lying liar who can't stop lying yes. is true of Captain James Flint um, <laughs> of Black Sails. Like when I do my Black Sails rewatches, now that I've seen the whole series, I'll watch the first season and be like, why this man is deranged and he doesn't stop lying and the thing is the venn diagram of james flint and odysseus in that regard is a circle yes and i mean you're right by the way i don't think that it's very evident when you go back and read the iliad and the odyssey unless you have an extensive like classics education and i'm not saying that this is inaccessible to most people but like for instance the characters mentioned, the people that you see in here, if you have never read like the Oedipus cycle, you gotta have you're lore. not going to know who Tiresias is. He shows up in here. That's who Odysseus goes to the underworld for. Agamemnon is 
dead because you only get like he only briefly summarizes but like honestly he deserved it stabby stab he deserved it okay he had to come in as the song okay we're gonna take a quick escalate and then he ran into clytemnestra's knife listen you've got to watch the greek cinematic multiverse okay you do it is because when the avengers get together Okay, sorry, you were not expecting me to go on an Aeschylus like ta- tangent, but it's happening. But there's this these group of plays um, known. I think they're officially known as the Oresteia. If yep. they are named after Orestes, who is Agamemnon's son. And essentially, what happened is Agamemnon came back from the Trojan War with a lot of money. <laughs> And another woman. And notably down one daughter. Yes, notably down Iphigenia. Yes. He in order to be able to sell to Troy, they had to make a sacrifice to Artemis. He told his daughter and her mother that they were going to marry her off to Achilles. And instead of being brought to the altar of her marriage, she was brought to the altar of her death because she was then sacrificed in order to sell to Troy. And so Clytemnestra who had to watch this happen, who's Agamemnon's wife, has 10 years to stew in her anger. She gets her nice little like side man yep. in this. His name is Agisthus, Agisthus. That sounds right. It's uh, something like that. So they hatch this plan to straight up murder Agamemnon when he gets back. And that is what they do. Because he's also brought Cassandra home with yes, him. Yes, and poor Cassandra. Poor Cassandra. Here, here's Moment the of thing. silence Boy, for Cassandra. <laughs> that escalates quickly. Uh, <laughs> I'm so mad at you. I mean, that really got out of hand well, fast. I'm so, and then, yes. And, and then, here's the thing. Every woman in Greek literature who has ever murdered someone was right. Yes. Maybe not Medea. I was just about to say that Medea. <laughs> Maybe not Medea. But Clytemnestra was certainly correct. And then here's the thing, Jeff. So because she murdered Agamemnon... Orestes, their son, is now in the worst position of all time. Like, you thought being between your parents' divorce was bad? Like, imagine being this guy who is being told by one god that he has to go straight up murder his mother now in revenge for her murdering his father. Except you're super not allowed to kill your mom. And so when he does kill his mom, because Apollo, I think, told him to, guess who comes to get him? The Furies. And they are furious with him because they come after him. They are driving him mad. They are driving Driving him up mountains, There's they a, are look chasing up, look him. Look up art. Yes. There's really I, good art of this. Can we just bring in a soundbite of, of narrator Ron Howard saying it's a Resty's development? <laughs> so, <gasps> stop it! <laughs> Sorry, Evan. Oh, I'm losing. Okay, so finally Furies. Athena has to come down and yes. be like, "Y'all have to stop." And the Furies are like, what do you mean? This is literally our occupation. And in some versions, Athena is like, well, if you want to go like do other work, you can come to Athens. I have a good setup for you there. You know, it's a remote position. You just got to fly around and like beat up people. How did they get there? Furies Road? <laughs> Why are you doing this? And that's not even to get into Electra. <laughs> yes. Who is Orestes' sister. Who is like, and again, you thought you had it bad. You thought that you watched your mother kill your father and then you had to kill your mother. Imagine watching your brother having to do that and then your brother gets tormented by eternal torture beings. It's all bad there. But you don't get these stories without the Odyssey and the Iliad. You need They're just like they expect you to know the lore. Yeah, they just like the lore is in the book. Like Orestes was actually on my list of father-son relationships because he comes up a lot. Um, while Telemachus is on his journey because they are the two heroes' sons that are, like, going through it. Like, 
poor Orestes, his father was murdered, but he took up arms against his mother and that traitor against this. And then it's like, and you are the spitting image of your father and we're sure you're just as clever and you are being mistreated by those suitors. And it's like, <sighs> sorry. So I mean, in other words, you really had to have watched the book of Boba Fett to understand why <laughs> baby Yoda's back in Mandalorian season three. You know, yes. These kinds of things are not new. It's, it's, it's rife with all of that information. But like you said, if you're just in a regular class and I mean, sure, people can draw like all of these comparisons to the Odyssey and the Iliad. Yes, the story is always there um, inspiring other stories or Oh, brother, where art thou? And things like that. But I it. I am a man. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yes. But. John Goodman was the Cyclops. Yes, he was. <laughs> Do you. Does it all come together now? Yes. So, but you need to know these things. And that is, that is probably my frustration with how the Odyssey is taught, is that it's actually not taught as a continuous work, as a part of other works, because I had encountered it in. Um, my mom let me watch the miniseries. I think I read excerpts in high school and things like that. And I really liked it. And then when I get to college, we read the Odyssey and then, sorry, we read the Iliad and then the Odyssey and all of these large cinematic Homer cinematic universe plays and things like, and spinoffs and things of that nature. So we got the full view. But if you don't know all of this stuff, you're being presented with this story and you're being told this is important. And sure, I think pretty much every story is important, but like if you don't know why it's important and somebody's just telling you, well, this is important, what are you really getting out of that? And I think also sometimes the reason why we're told is that it's important is like this whole like myth of Western civilization yes. kind of idea is like, oh, like Greece is the beginning of Western civilization, a exactly. thing that does not exist. And and the Odyssey is like the pinnacle of their literature, so we have to study it because the greats. Mm -hmm. When instead, it could just be an interesting work of narrative. Yes. Like even just thinking about narrative structure and how the Iliad starts with like Achilles is throwing a temper tantrum mm -hmm. and how the Odyssey doesn't start with Odysseus. That's interesting. Exactly. You can dig into that real deep from like a narrative structure standpoint. And it doesn't have to be about this like whole weird like glory to Greece kind of thing. And yeah, so that's my big like, and you're right. That's, I mean, the basis of my education was like, oh, the Western canon specifically. And obviously I liked it enough to like continue thinking about it, but it also calls into question why things are taught that way. I mean, the Odyssey is also kind of singular if you, Sorry, both the Odyssey and the Iliad are singular. Homeric Greek, in terms of like ancient Greek, because it was spoken, um, is actually much different than the regular ancient Greek that you will see written. So the way that these works have to be translated is like, yes, you need to know ancient Greek to mm -hmm. translate them, but there are certain intricacies and like vernacular conjugations and things like that that are not actually that accessible, mm -hmm. which is why, despite the fact that the actual Odyssey itself is not that long, this book has a almost 80 page introduction, yep. a translator note, and then like, dozens of pages of notes you know following all of it that you know have to explain what is going on here that is so much context that is lacking that really i think needs to change the way that we approach these works so and i don't think it can be adapted very I, well <laughs> i also want to say that for anyone listening who i think a lot of people listening to this are going to be 
potentially familiar with Romeo and Juliet, familiar with the Odyssey, and familiar with Moby Dick, but mm-hmm. have potentially never read all three, and that's absolutely fine because cultural osmosis you pretty, you yes. pretty, or film adaptations, you pretty much get what you need. And also, if you're overcome with a hankering to ameliorate any of that, yeah. come right on down to your local Ferndale Area yeah. District Library. And that's exactly the thing, is that I don't want people to, as they, wherever you are, late 20s, mid 30s, mm-hmm. early 40s, whatever, don't look at these classics on the shelf and assume you're never going to read them. Don't walk past the Odyssey and figure, well, that ship has sailed. I, <clears throat> I don't, and especially with Moe Dick. So that's why I wanted to bring up uh, Moby Dick. Because Moby Dick is, uh, I think, um, kind of the butt of a lot of jokes uh, for things we don't want to read, things we don't feel like reading, things we don't need to read, and things I, that are too boring. I also think that there's a dimension to that that because it's an American writer, mm-hmm. and there's this idea, perhaps, that America, that's what that's what the French do. Writing a doorstop is the work of Victor Hugo. That's what the Russians do. They yes. have Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, and they won't shut up. I think that, like, with Moby Dick, because that's the real classic, like, brick. The, of the a, Rosetta Stone of great American novels? Of, of American mm-hmm. literature. Yeah. I often wonder if there's a sort of modern embarrassment because even the other classic 19th century works aren't that long. Scarlet Letter's not a long book. Right. Not like that. Um, and on perhaps a different podcast, we will get into my favorite thing that sounds like a conspiracy theory, but is not, uh, which is that one of the reasons that like American literary fiction is like that, that kind of very Hemingway. Steinbeckian. Steinbeck, like sort of stripped down. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, very much the opposite of Moby Dick is right. because... In the mid-20th century, prominent writers' workshops like Iowa were funded in part by the CIA as a counter-communism effort. Holy cow. Which, again, a thing that sounds like a nutter conspiracy theory when you say it out loud, but there's a very extensive Chronicle of Higher Education article about it, complete with a lot of footnotes. We're going to get into that, but yes, in a way, this feels Dickensian. Wow. Yes, I'm, I'm touching the book on the the Moby Dick, the, the Herman Melville, uh, and people might presume, oh, that's kind of a Dickensian kind of a vibe, and it is. It's it's uh, Shakespearean at points, and oh, very its, much so in its language, and it's and it's and it's um dramatic sensibilities. Like Absolutely. again, I haven't read the whole thing, but I have seen Dave Dave Malloy's musical adaptation of it is quite thorough. <laughs> this... Um, I have vibe checked that with people I know who love Moby Dick, and the thing about Moby Dick is that it's. Sure, it's a 600-page novel, but only 400 of those pages are story. Almost 200 of it is dedicated well, to whale biology. And well, whale much biology. of which I love is that. not correct, which frankly makes it all the more interesting. Here's the thing. I think you need to embrace, as someone who, like, the formative novel of my youth was Les Miserables, <laughs> you have to embrace Victor, although it in no way impacts our story, Hugo. Yes. You have to sit back with your glass of cranberry juice or sherry or whatever and be like, yes, 19th century author, go on a tangent. We're here by the fire. The night is long. Exactly. And what else do we have to detain us? And I also think like before I read War and Peace, which I read after watching Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, I didn't know what War and Peace was about. People Mm -hmm. are just like, oh, War and Peace. But if you're like, oh, no, it's about this like 
circle of rich people mm-hmm. in Moscow who are sort of hiding from the fact that there's a war going on out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. And there's a love triangles and there's drama. And the first hundred pages of War and Peace is the hottest club in Western literature. It's also so much French. It's so much French. The first, the first lines of War and Peace are very, very famously not in Russian. They're yes. in French. Um, and the same thing with Moby Dick. As like, I have read the early chapters. The, the beginning of Moby Dick is like standing in line at the grocery store or the secretary of state or something. And the guy behind you is like... Not it's getting like, to the it's point. It's like Ben Wyatt on Parks and Recreation. Who hasn't had gay thoughts? Right. Like he's having a minor <laughs> mental breakdown in this line that you can't get out of. And you're like, this guy's obviously having a day, but also now I'm invested. Honestly, that's that's the... That's the appeal. But Jeff, I'm just so We're gonna share a bed. Is like you joked with me in the office before we came out here about like making fun of Moby Dick because you enjoy it so much. You like you take the I expectation do, of and being I take a hater on, I take on the be, without being a hater. Almost to like make fun of the haters. Right. right. That's how and, I am with Lamez Rock. Right. So what is it that you think that the haters don't get? about Moby Dick. What is it that you think they're missing? I wonder, I really haven't tried to get into their heads because mm-hmm. I am not one to try to to try to change minds. I don't like to argue Roddy. <laughs> I, I, am very, I invited I'm, the two most fight me yes, members I am very, of the staff. I am very much like, well, that's, that's, okay. you're, 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 I'm a very much <laughs> you're entitled to that opinion person. Uh, and I think that the easiest thing to, to fall upon is its length, its pace, mm-hmm. and its divergence into whale biology. And I think that a lot of people would say, we'll get to the point. The other thing, harpoon pun, is that a lot of people know how this book ends thanks to the wide range of adaptations. Mm -hmm. My favorite thing about this book is that the most famous sequence about it, its ending, is the last five pages of this very, very long book. (laughs) So if you're getting on board, just because you want to see crazy Ahab go overboard with a whale, you're going to have to wait 594 pages. And I don't. And you're going to have to read a searing indictment of the existence of America. Absolutely. I mean, the book starts with what? One of the most famous lines in literature, which is the introduction of the narrator. Am I remembering this right? Yes, gonna- call Roddy, me are, Roddy, are you. I thought you were playing. Did you not know what it was? No, I I, I know what it is. Okay, good. I just wanted to Ooh. see if I could incite you to violence. And it failed, unfortunately. <laughs> I got so close. Let it be noted. And I- so I don't know. <laughs> and so I think that people, but I think people get this book in the same way that they get Frankenstein. They mm. Frankenstein. Um, okay, don't play God. Got it. Thanks. Or mm. don't don't meddle with nature. Uh, it will literally bite you in the ass. Got it. Which Thanks. is such a 19th yeah. century American thing. Right. 19th century Americans love to be like, nature doesn't care about you. Right. And I mean. And so why do I have to invest? Yada, yada, yada. So. Well, because I actually like, feel like Moby Dick is by that effect actually misread. Yes. To be honest with you, because I feel like Frankenstein, as far as people understand Frankenstein, this is once again, Roddy harping about the evils of adaptation because there is a modern culture view of Frankenstein that is not actually what the book Frankenstein is about, which is also 
just a gay doorstep. Which is also right. true. Um, here's something that I don't believe we've discussed on the podcast yet. And since you brought up Frankenstein, I have my opening. Guillermo. Excuse me, since you dug up Frankenstein. All right, go ahead. Uh, oh, so, Guillermo yeah. del Toro. His adaptation of Frankenstein is going forward. And it was recently announced that he's cast Andrew Garfield as the monster. And this is about to be the most homoerotically tense Frankenstein the as world has ever known. Be. And the only person I trust to understand that book for adaptation is Guillermo. Actually, so that brings me to Guillermo should adapt Moby Dick for us because I Because he would understand. So the same way understand. that he's always like fascism is wrong. Like so much of Moby Dick actually isn't so much about nature caring about you or whatever. It's about Ahab yes. at the helm of this ship running not quite literally everything into the ground, but this, running everything into very, very yes. deep, treacherous water. And that's what appeals to me about this book, is, yes. that, exactly. is that feeling of entrapment. Yes. We mm-hmm. have this whimsical guy at the beginning of the book yeah. saying, I'm going to wander my way down to the dock and see what kind of trouble I'm I can not get into. Dep- could a depressed person just, make this? Exactly. <laughs> and there's that sense of like, oh, no, we are now trapped for yes. the foreseeable 90 for days. years. Yeah, right. On this boat with this crazy man. You know how long it takes to get to Japan from Cape Cod? So it's a book about choices. Yes. Uh. and But that's that's the other part to this that I'm just like, you know, that is not what we get. Like, of course. We're going off the rails on a crazy train. It's literally this book. I was just listening to that. All right. But here's the thing. Like, as you were saying, like, Ahab. I love you guys know I love a villain. Ahab is 100% a villain. His quest for the white whale. I had you begged for that. Oh, my goodness. Jeff, you are this on a, a roll higher today. than usual rate. I'm sorry. This is you've just been added. This is actually kind of like I'm usually mad and I am slightly I'm actually angry. edging into impressed B- now. But I'm actually impressed because Jeff has been like he doesn't practice these listeners. I think it's the proximity of Moby Dick. It's giving me extra power. <laughs> well, <laughs> give me that it's book. <laughs> you can't have it anymore. It's like some sort of gem. It's like emanating something. <laughs> no, anyway. it's like radioactive. Oh my goodness! But it's just you know that's that's the other problem is that it's like everybody talks about their white whale that they have to catch not taking into account the kind of person that you have what to, be about, to keep catching what the about whale. the white captain that you should decide whether or not you have to shoot yes like we talk so much about like the white whale i just i have to repeat that because it frustrates me that that is the crux of like how we talk about this book in modern culture like we have to catch our white whale we have to go after this thing that i have to keep chasing and it's like no it's not the like problem the is the chase yes the problem is the chase the problem is the chaser the white whale is doing well things it is just existing in nature yes. doing what it should be right. doing as opposed to daisy and gatsby yes who is a careless person who smashes up things yes listen imagine if the 1994 film speed starring keanu Reeves oh my goodness was instead of keanu saying we have a bomb on the bus i have to go this fast it was keanu driving the bus saying i want to catch something we're gonna drive fast yes. you're all stuck on the bus with exactly. me exactly Ah, poor Sandra. Yes. Sorry. I love that movie. But it's just, so that is my, if I will pick a problem for you, Jeff, Mm -hmm. since you want to be nice to the Moby Dick haters, the problem is that in how we talk about this book, we have completely like missed the mark in terms of like how it 
is framed, how yeah. it is quite literally written. Like, there's only so much that I'm like, I will give leeway to for interpretation. But if your takeaway from this is that you need to go chase your own white whale, you need to you need to take a moment well, to reflect. Power trip to uh, madness. There's a line <laughs> in the book somewhere of like, we are all mad souls adrift. And like, yes, that's exactly what's happening going on here. It's a sense of entrapment. It, you guys are stuck on a crazy train. <laughs> We're the crazy guy. <laughs> just, just poor gone. souls. And Stub and Starbuck, just hanging in there. <laughs> and we are all in the belly of the whale. Yeah. Because another very famous port part at the beginning is the Jonah sermon. Yeah. And woof. Oh yeah. Jonah was caught in that body because he was running from his problems. Ahab uh, was running to his problems. Yes, that's a yes. Sorry. No, <laughs> just, it's okay. Just had to. It's okay. I mean, I now we're kind of on the topic of like famous like the misreadings of these things that have become the more popular thought. Mm-hmm. And it's just like oh, like uh I mean, we hear it all the time with the Trojan horse. I mean, they kind of get it, but they also kind of don't. And it's like, I'm sorry, I'm going to like calm down. But but I mean, for me, actually, that's one of the joys of reading classic literature is is reading the book that you've heard so much about Mm -hmm. and going, oh, and like sort of comparing. So like I'd always heard that all of the battle scenes in War and Peace were like, brutally boring that was true i can confirm that but all of the parts of war and peace that aren't that or aren't a 30 page essay at the end leo uh when all of the action is done are fascinating because i love drama and here's and like love every bit of war and peace it's not anyone's problem but mine but that is a a you problem i read that book it it is my most tabulated book ever like it got to the point usually after college i like to give away the program books that i had for that semester it would have taken me so long to just remove all of my tabs that i was like you know what obviously i love this too much to get rid of it i will just keep it yeah and it's just i i i mean i any bit with andre which he's not there that long so don't let me keep selling this man to you as if he's there the whole time because spoiler alert he's not but the time that but he's he there, is the saddest little wet man he when he is is and i, I talk love about him a so little meow meow i he's my baby girl <laughs> truly and deeply well and, <laughs> and this also makes me think about you know even books where it goes the opposite direction like dracula which when i was assigned it for school i didn't think i would enjoy dracula is one of the most fun novels written in english yes like that novel is a hoot and a half and also i find it genuinely moving and like this is go, go read the classic literature well, folks jane austen is funny yes like that I mean, kind of thing that's what i was actually just about to say i feel like a lot of the problem with the literature and approaching like this classic literature is the accessibility of the language mm-hmm. which is a concern that people have which is a valid concern but i don't think they I'd, this is my thing this is not me assuming what you do or do not understand listener but this is my my sell to you which is that if just give it a shot try to read a couple of chapters you will actually acclimate to the type of language way faster than you think or if the if reading it is not helping it sink in for you Get the audiobook. Audiobook. Audio bu- I just listened to the audiobook of Pride and Prejudice because we thought we were going to talk about it more than we actually did. It's and such a great house. I was like, I was cackling. The houses are important. It's such a great house. The houses are so important, literally. Like, but if we have five minutes, I'll tell you why. But it's just like, 
when you listen to these things, the things that you, you can, it adds context to hear people speak them. Even the Odyssey, the Odyssey in its first form was spoken. It is a poem. It is an epic poem. You need to hear these things. So if reading it is not doing it for you, listening to it will really help. I also find you tend to catch more of the jokes that way. Yes. Because the the narrator has done the work of finding the jokes for you and making sure that the delivery of the jokes tells you that it is a joke. Yes. And I mean, so I guess we could try to really quickly do our whole Pride and Prejudice thing. Okay, so here's why the house is important. Yes. <laughs> First of all, Pride and Prejudice is deeply funny. It is a romantic comedy. Mary Graham and I have stood on this hill so many times and I will die on I this will hill. Die on it. My bones will turn to dust on this hill. That is how deeply I feel about that. <laughs> but the houses. The houses. Well, and Pemberley especially. So, of course, like, Jane, there's this rather famous moment where, you know, by the end of the book, Elizabeth has said yes to Darcy's proposal. He has proposed for the second time because the first proposal was a total hashtag cringe fail moment. And... <laughs> And Jane says to Elizabeth, like, oh, like, when do you think you started to fall in love with him? And Lizzie is like, oh, when I when I first saw his his wonderful grounds at Pemberley at yes. his house. And Jane's like, oh, Lizzie, be serious. But there's kind of there the thing no. about Darcy is that Elizabeth doesn't know Darcy. She like doesn't. you have these other like people talk about Emma and they're like, oh, it's so boring that Emma just like marries like her older next door neighbor. No, that's romantic as heck because she already knows that George Knightley is a dependable person. Yes. That is a man that she knows who is not going to betray her uh and the thing is elizabeth doesn't know darcy pemberley is his reference yes when she visits his hometown and everyone's like you know okay maybe he's a bit proud but like we're all very well taken care of and then his housekeeper is like proud i've never seen it he's always been really nice to me exactly like elizabeth's like Uh, yeah, okay, actually, it's possible I've made a dire mistake. I actually wrote a paper in college about the houses in Pride and Prejudice yeah. and how they are indicative of every character. Um, I focus most on Pemberley because Pemberley does the talking for Darcy. Yes. Pemberley does the, I don't, I don't mean seducing in the sleazy way. I mean seducing in like the quite literal, like the, that's what seduces, you know, Elizabeth. Yes. Just as Rosings for Lady Catherine de Bourgh, <laughs> Rosings is how you see, I mean, it's not like she doesn't do enough talking for you to see her character, oh but Rosings is very emblematic of her characters. It is the overly expensive. Alone. It's tacky. It is overly expensive. It is gilded and it is a cage for her and for her daughter. Like these houses are so very important. And that <laughs> when you don't, if you ever read or listen to Pride and Prejudice, I, the movies, the adaptations do well with this. But just when Lizzie is walking through Pemberley, through the house and through the grounds, just really, really listen and try to soak in what is being said there. Because that house is its own. It is both. That house is both Mr. Darcy and both its own character at the same time. And I will also say this is my one last thing about Pride and Prejudice, which along the lines of it being very funny and like Jane Austen clearly delighting in describing like this tacky house. One of my favorite characters in Pride and Prejudice is Mr. Collins, not for himself because he is the worst, but because Jane Austen, like me, was a clergy child. And on my most recent reread of Pride and Prejudice, when it mentions that Mr. Collins has just been ordained and is 26 years old, I'm like, huh. 
I'm sure he's like that because of some of his own personality flaws. Right. But also I think about some of the 26-year-old priests I have known. There's a lot you haven't learned yet. Yes. And I'm like, Jane, did you know him? I'm convinced that every every priest that books that appears in her books, I'm like, you knew him personally, didn't you? Yes. You met him at some conference of your father's. <laughs> what would you make of my diocesan convention, Jane? What would you make of coffee hour? And also, he drives a lot of the humor. Of he's the book. so funny because he's the worst. Was your paper on the Houses of Pride and Prejudice called A State of Affairs? No, Jeff. It was called... I can't remember it's a good what title. It sure, Jeff. It's a good title. <laughs> I oh. am feeling a little spicy now because Jeff has thrown yet another pun into the fray. I drive the comedy. I think we just covered that. You are not. You are better than Mr. Collins. You are very much. Well, many thank times you. over. You're welcome. Uh, March is reading month. I think you should read either of the four <laughs> books that we just talked about if you haven't already. Uh, we're out of time, but we'll be back with more, I'm sure. I do want to get into that conspiracy that Mary Graham brought up. That sounds interesting. I am, just as you are, marveling at how awesome both of you are, literally. You. I mean, Thank I've been a, a jackass all episode long, but you have put on a clinic, and I've really appreciated we it. We really needed that, though. That's great. <laughs> we, it's, 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 it's our own answer to the excellent podcast, Save Me From My Shelf. Absolutely. Abby and Daniel, come on the show, please. Uh, come on the show. We have all so right. much to talk about. Uh, we are uh, in the Ferndale Library, which means it's the podcast of this library. <laughs> What library is that, Jeff? Produced. <laughs> Here. And and it's the friends of what library that support this? The friends of, um, uh, what is it? Uh, it's the podcast that's brought to you by the... Friends. It's the, it's, the, it's the Ferndale Library podcast. It's brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to John Duffy for bringing us music to begin and end these episodes. A thank you to Mary Graham and Roddy. And tune in next week for more. <laughs>